welcome back to The Popular Show with me, James A. Smith, the show that asks, when are you going to start standing up for yourself? Well, one guy whose writings are chronicling the actions of those who are standing up for themselves and for others is Ollie Haynes. He's a, a journalist uh, who covers social movements and protest movements across Europe uh, in The Guardian, Navarra Media and other outlets. Ollie, great to have you back on The Popular Show. Uh, yeah, great to be back, man. Uh, long-time listener, third-time caller, I think, now. But uh, Yeah, three. This, this is your third time. So that puts you one ahead of such noted fans of appearing on the popular show as Peter Hitchens and Michael Tracy, who have both clocked in two appearances. So um, this is your third friend of the show and borderline personal friend as well, I think. B- uh, no, of course, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what's that? BPF. You're a BPF. Um, well, yeah, listeners, um, I want you to consider that if you want independent radical media to continue, then you might get your wallet out occasionally. Get over to patreon.com forward slash the popular pod where you can um, get all kinds of exclusives uh, and really cool stuff. And depending on how long Ollie and I wax on uh, in this conversation, you'll be getting the second half of this as well. Um, we covered um, some goings on in France a few weeks ago uh, with Charles Develens uh, in our episode on French carnage, where we were talking about Emmanuel Macron and uh, his extraordinary uh, political wranglings and also something of the extraordinary resistance that has come up against him. And, and there um, we were discussing the ways in which Macron can be seen, you know, in a in a scene with some competition um, as almost the representative world leader of, of the current era. There's something very intriguing about this combination of uh, an unashamed pandering to the middle class, the bourgeois bloc, as, uh, as Macron calls it, um, representing himself as the saviour of a country from uh, both the the, the wicked reaches of the far right and the far left, whilst also being the most illiberal um, uh, uh, leader with the most disregard for conventional um, forms of democracy um, that we've seen for a long time. Um, Ollie, we, we've uh, we've had just in the last week a, a kind of interesting uh, case study in how this Macron project is spreading with the arrest in Britain of... Ernest Moret, uh, Ernest Moret. Um, Moret I'm, going yeah. to be, I'm going to be doing some terrible pronunciation all the way through the show. It is, uh, it is a, <laughs> a pro-Brexit program after all, and you get that at the very level of pronunciation. But maybe you could tell us about this about this case because uh, it, it's quite a thing. And you wrote about this for Navarra, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's a, it's a really interesting case and quite a shocking case. Basically, Ernest Moret. Uh, is a rights manager for Edition de la Fabri- Edition la Fabrique, which is effectively um, French Verso, radical publisher, publishing yeah. left-wing tracts. Uh, uh, your viewers and listeners probably heard of The Coming Insurrection. That was one of theirs. Um, and I think they actually do partner with Verso Books over here in the UK. And so he was over for the London Book Fair. He had 40 or so meetings uh, with authors and you know other publishers, agents uh, scheduled in. And he gets off the uh, train at St Pancras, off the Eurostar, with his colleague and is then immediately stopped and questioned by uh, British police, plainclothes officers, part of the counter-terrorism unit, who cited Schedule 7 of the 2000 Terrorism Act uh, as the reason to question him. They asked him to hand over his phone and his laptop um, and said that they had seen him he had been spotted rather at french protests and that's why they need to see his phone and his laptop um and that he needs to give them the pin he refused so a few hours later they came back with a warrant uh, in the early hours of the morning of tuesday probably the 18th i think uh and they arrested him now um what's happened since is that he spent several hours in custody he was asked several questions um which I think French media uh, reported after the questions that he was asked were, um, do you support Emmanuel Macron? 
Uh, and what books are you going to be publishing coming up? Um, so, I mean, it's not entirely, we can get, get into why this has happened and what is happening here. But uh, his lawyer told me that uh, he, he was speculating that this was a kind of mutual assistance agreement between the British police and the French police, uh, whereby undesirables in France come over here because the Terrorism Act is quite capacious, um, can be used in a way that French police, basically French police, sorry about this, I'll take that again. French police can't um, can't request your your the details of your devices, basically. Yeah. Uh, whereas the Terrorism Act in Britain allows that to happen. And so that is potentially why, on the suspicion of his lawyer, it took him to get over here before he was arrested. I mean, th this is fascinating. You, you've got uh, two um, governments which, uh, at least in the, the eyes of a lot of the liberal commentariats, couldn't be more different. The, the, the Brexiteer populist government of Boris Johnson... Uh, coming in in 2019, uh, and the uh, the government of Emmanuel Macron, and a lot of British Remainers and and, and people who you know hated Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn pretty much equally, had a, a this huge kind of uh, you know Macron envy really, and, and and saw him as everything that our leaders weren't. But um, immediately Boris Johnson um, uh, uh, passed a, a, a raft of legislation over the over the the first year of his government a lot of this was helped by the kind of suspension of a lot of norms of scrutiny uh, that came with uh, the lockdowns um, and also uh, Keir Starmer's um, pathologies which perhaps we'll get into um, in a bit so Britain although as you say this is much earlier legislation this is this is 2000 this is Blair era legislation nonetheless that there is a there's a kind of way in which norms in Norms in Britain, norms that uh, have been um, have, have emerged over the last few years um, uh, since Johnson uh, became prime minister, um, are are sort of being deployed to similar effect to the quite novel laws that Macron has been um, has been using. In addition to those that he also inherited from predecessors. So, uh, despite some um, uh, superficial differences, I, 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 do all um, is kind of Macronism the end point for for all of us? Uh, I, I mean, do you, do you see a, a kind of uh, a way in which Rishi Sunak is is, uh, is taking the Conservative Party in a kind of Macron-like direction? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, Rishi and Macron, in their outlook, I think are, are very very similar. Um, and then, sort of one of the uh, the Macronist sort of innovations as it were is this um i mean i get I, not that they invented this but in, in recent years they've been the ones deploying it is uh just a kind of beefing up of the police force mm -hmm. um and de uh, deploying that directly against dissent now all governments have done this whatever but macronism really has uh, ramped this up we've seen a shocking level of police violence um we've seen sort of measures that give the police more power they were particularly harsh during lockdowns in comparison to um lots of european countries um and i do think that this kind of state crackdown on protest in particular that macronism has spearheaded is um being taken up over here i've, I've spoken to french people recently who've said that they're sort of watching what's going on over here uh, with sort of dismay because they see it as part of a, a kind of similar project. And I do kind of think they're um, the the government on either side of the channel are learning from each other. So mm -hmm. what we're, where we're innovating is particularly in kind of ways to suppress the right to strike. Whereas I think where France is innovating is uh, ways in which you suppression sort of uh, suppress uh, free speech and the right to free assembly. Uh, what the Mohe case I suspect indicates is that there's been some kind of quid pro quo between the French government and the British government. I, 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 I'm speculating. I, I'm a journalist. I don't want to, you know, say that this is definitely true, but I would guess that there's been some kind of quid pro quo, and that probably around the stuff where France, uh, France are deploying their sort of repressive apparatus against migrants on our behalf. So we will deploy our repressive apparatus against French um, undesirables in the eyes of the government mm -hmm. on, on their behalf. And it's not the first time that we've done this, actually, uh, for 
I mean, like foreign governments, like David Miranda, Glenn Greenwald's husband, uh, yeah. was detained under the same legislation uh, while he was carrying Snowden. Of course. Documents. Yeah. So, I mean, I, like, um, we are quite good at using this particular bit of legislation to obtain information on behalf of other powers. But yeah, I, I do think there's a kind of interesting dynamic whereby the French and the British governments are looking at each other and learning um, about new ways to kind of restrict dissent in particular. A few years ago in Britain, uh, the fellow travellers of uh, Edition, uh, Edition de la Fabrique uh, and Verso Books were looking to get into government and, and were there at the top of the, um, the main opposition party with the Corbyn project. Today, they're getting arrested when they get off the train at, uh, at King's Cross. Um, wh why are they going for the left? Uh, and do you think that that is in any way heartening to those of us who thought that, uh, you know, the left and, and the kind of things getting published with these presses are, are kind of irrelevant to uh, any real opposition at the moment? Um, I mean, that's a really interesting question. And I think Charles, in your excellent episode with him, Charles touched on this a bit, um, that the far right and the centre in France are kind of frenemies. Like, mm -hmm. um, they need each other. Because the way Macron has won re-election has was elected and then won re-election was using the Fifth Republic system and then sort of the you've talked about this a lot on the show the kind of anti-fascist blackmail, whereby you you have you force left-wing voters into uh, blocking the really hateful figure uh, at, while Macron is then able to drift to the right. But I think last time I came on we talked about uh, the emergence of Nupes, uh, the left coalition. And um, the last big movement to challenge Macron was the Gilets Jaunes, which kind of didn't really have a left or right feel. You could sort of code it either way. This current movement against pension reform very much does have a left-wing feel. It, it has mm. other elements to it as well, but this uh, has much more of a left-wing feel because it's led by unions. It started as a series of strikes. The most active parliamentarians in support of it are uh, in La France Insoumise. Um, and the star is rising of the left. Uh, mm -hmm. I wrote recently in The Guardian about how the far right is benefiting, far right is benefiting from this. And they absolutely are, undeniably. Uh, it's creating a sort of uh, nihilism around politics, a, a disaffection that is very easily channeled into the far right. The far right are also the biggest opposition uh, in the parliament, or uh, sorry, the biggest opposition party in the parliament is the uh, Rassemblement National though the NUPS coalition of four or five parties is bigger overall. Um, but they're, they're gaining there. Uh, Le Pen said recently, um, if this reform isn't pulled back, I will simply say to the French people, elect the Rassemblement National. And it, it, like that, that, that's a, quite a compelling message, basically. This reform is really, really unpopular, and she is presenting herself in opposition to it. So I do think the primary beneficiaries at the moment are the far right just because of the usual structural ob obstacles to left advance don't really apply to her yeah. and to their party that being said um if the left can keep itself together i do think the left also stands to benefit from this polls they're not that useful necessarily but they they also show a bump in the left and there have been some very interesting um figures parliamentarily coming out of this uh coming out of this movement there are Antoine Lomont is a Francis Soumise MP. He's down on the street uh, every day chronicling police violence, actually getting hit by police themselves and shot at, um, which is unusual for an MP. Uh, Hachel Keke is a La France Soumise MP, a former cleaner. She's been um, giving barnstorming speeches about what it's like to you know, work in a hotel and um, uh, have your, your hands hurt and your back hurts uh, in a way that just other MPs absolutely cannot relate to. Yeah. And then François Ruffin, uh, he was very popular with the yellow vest. He's been absolutely on fire, challenging the Macron government left, right and centre. And then as well as them, uh, you have uh, all over the country. I, I've, I've been speaking to lots of trade unionists, members of the CGT uh, and Sudhai and Solidaire, which are the kind of slightly more radical unions. Uh, all over the country, I'll, I'll speak to someone who's in the union as a sort of representative of their area. I'll Google them and then I'll see that their media profile has just been absolutely packed for the last um, uh, the last few months because they are just going out and banging the drum uh, against this reform. 
Um, and the, the, the movement still has managed to maintain a lot of energy. So there is a lot of sort of creative energy on the left, uh, which does worry the Macron government. Um, so there's been a kind of moral panic in recent years about wokeism, Islamo-leftism, blah, 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 blah. And that is uh, being stepped up again. They're putting the pedal to the floor on that. Uh, the interior minister, Gérard Darmanin, in particular, is kind of Macron's enforcer in the anti-left um, war. He recently, uh, because also this pension reform, crucially, this pension reform is lending energy to other movements. Mm-hmm. Because people are so angry that the, if you have a grievance and you can gather people for a grievance, people will show up to direct energy at the government now. So you had um, in Saint-Soline recently protests over the construction of reservoirs, which is a kind of local ecological issue. But that saw huge numbers of people turn up and it got very, very violent. And then also recently there's been, um, I can't remember exactly where it is, but there's been protests about motorways. And, you know, trade unions have turned up, they've built roads in the middle of the, built walls in the middle of the roads. Um, and, and greater numbers of people are turning up uh, because of the, the pension reform and the wider kind of democracy issue. So the left is kind of feeding off itself and getting larger in some ways. Trade unions have gained more membership. Um, and this does this does worry the Macron government. And so, because there's kind of two fronts to this. There's the anti-left war in the streets, which is conducted by a police, uh, as, I, as I talked about earlier. And then there's this fear, really is fear of Planet Mélenchon. Um, mm-hmm. It won't necessarily be him. Like, they, maybe they'll find a successor. But there was a by-election recently and uh, any pretense at the Republican front still existing, where people gather together to erect a wall against the far right, uh, that is gone. They, they, they're, they're now speaking of the Republican arc, um, which is kind of, it's like Macronist horseshoe theory, essentially. Um, the leftists in La France Insoumise are outside, considered outside the Republican arc. They are not morally legitimate politicians in the eyes of uh, Macronism. And the Rassemblement National are also considered outside the Republican arc. But what we saw in the most recent by-election in Ariège was a tacit coalition between the far right and the Macronists to block uh, the incumbent Nupes candidate from winning. So um, it's, It seems fitting that France, which more or less invented the anti-fascist blackmail uh, where the left has to support uh, even the most cynical uh, and um, illiberal centrists in order to block the far right it, it, it's uh it's it's kind of interesting that france might be the the country that would finally deconstruct that that dynamic uh, and i mean partly because as as we you and i have discussed on the show before Mélenchon is much uh, uh harder than either bernie sanders or jeremy corbyn about resisting that that um that that, that pull um but also uh because Macron uh, and the far right have, have, have made that sort of symbiosis between centre uh, and right um, so much more transparent. No, absolutely. And um, I mean, there was an interesting article in Le, Le Figaro today, which was Mélenchon says, I want to be replaced, meaning he wants a successor. Uh, should we believe him? Was the, mm. was the headline. And maybe because mm-hmm. I mean, he probably has the energy to run again. I don't know whether he will. Um, but he probably does, and that scares them. I mean, it, it just sounds nice to have the situation where the potential successors are still appearing. I, I mean, we we will, uh, for our sins, get on to the situation of the, the socialist campaign group in, in Britain and the absolute paucity of any prospect of, of, a, of a successor to Jeremy Corbyn. Um, all those names that you're reeling off and the fact that they're all still in the ascendancy and that, that they are from um, working class backgrounds in many cases, they are they are unashamedly there on the streets and on the side of um, the, this insubordination and, and these uprisings. All of that points to the future and, and, and uh, a future with a hell of a lot of potential. Um, I mean, it's always the danger when talking about France from Britain that you'll fall into what Stefan Collini refers to as Dreyfus envy, um, where, where the uh, rebelliousness of the, the public sphere and, and the intellectual sphere and the left uh, of France becomes this uh, this thing that we imagine we could never uh, have in Britain. But but nonetheless, it, it's uh, it's a pretty good time um, for for such observations, it seems. Um, well, I, I mean, unless you want to carry on with any of the, 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 
the per, the personalities of uh, Mélenchon's potential successors. Um, maybe we should dive into the the development of uh, the movements themselves. Um, you've been covering this for a long time. I think for as long as I've I've known of you, you've been covering the the Gilets Jaunes. Um, and yeah, as as you say, the, the, is it fair to say that the um, the, the nature of the the, the protests uh, in France is it's kind of an interesting dynamic whereby it's simultaneously becoming more diverse and inhabiting more and more spheres and more and more areas of work and more and more areas of discontent whilst at the same time becoming more left-wing in its aesthetics and, and tone and vocabulary yeah absolutely no, absolutely i'll just say one more thing on men before i move yeah, on great. to the, before i move on to the movements which is to say that um there's a kind of interesting discussion happening right now within La France Insoumise about how the Mélenchon successor will emerge. And I spoke to an activist who is relatively close to the leadership. He helped draft um, the LGBT rights section of the Union Populaire Manifesto. So, you know, he's an activist. He's not, he's not in the smoke-filled back rooms or whatever, but mm -hmm. he's, you know, he's close to the leadership. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And basically, there's a there's a section that he's not part of of the movement that are kind of it tentatively moving towards. Oh, maybe we should democratize. Maybe we should open up the party structures. Um, maybe like we're going to need to elect the successor. Um, I don't think this is the civil war that French press have portrayed it as, by the way. But but there is a split. Um, and then there's there's the side of Cassandre, who I was speaking to, who basically suggests that. The successor should be chosen by what by what they call charismatic legitimacy, because um, lots of the people, Mélenchon in particular, but lots of the people who followed him into La France Insoumise, had experience of the Parti Socialiste um, or other left wing parties, and the just sort of nightmare logistically of operating in that space. I mean, you're in the Labour Party, you know what being in a political, a broad political party with democratic structures is like. There are obviously benefits to party democracy uh, and, th and you know, things like that, but it requires an awful lot of meeting. You know, the problem with socialism is too many meetings, there's too many votes. You're constantly focusing on this internal stuff rather than external stuff. Yeah. So what, what Casson's section of La France Insoumise want is effectively for just a leader to emer emerge based on who is the most popular uh, and who is the most sort of creative leader. And um, I think that faction probably is bigger because that was that was part of Mélenchon, Mélenchon's whole pitch. So the successor probably will carry on that uh, that project. But that's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, that's a very interesting dynamic, dynamic indeed. Um, could you tell us about the um, the energy workers and maybe kind of work out from from there in terms of the... the uh, uh, the, the wide scene of protests that we're seeing here. Um, you've, you've, written, you've written about these for um, for Navarra Media, was it, again? Um, the, the Robin Hood protests, what are those about? Yeah, uh, so energy has been particularly interesting, an interesting factor in these strikes. Uh, your slogan goes, be willing to do something that other people need, or do something that other people need, be willing to stop doing it. Well, that's, that's really what they have done. Um, the the Robin Hood's uh, protesters are electricians, so uh, and workers in power plants and um, in the electricity, the grid, effectively. Uh, and so it's Robin Hood because they take from the rich and they give to the poor, and they do this um, by uh, they they can perform technical actions. They work to know sort of where the supply to particular buildings uh, is located, and they turn it off. And so they've done this to um, MPs aligned to the presidential majority in Lyon, who were very snarky and, you know, anti the movement. Uh, they turned the offices off the MP Cyril Isaac Sibyl, I think. They've also done it to Macron several times. The official president's uh, residency is the Fort de Bregançon. That's been put into energy sobriety, as they call it, several times. Um, they've done it to the Stade de France. And... Basically, recently, Macron said that he was going to, as the quid pro quo for forcing through this pension reform that everyone hates, he was going to devote the next 100 days to uh, coming up with ways to seriously materially benefit the French people. And they've gone, no, we're going to do 100 days of action uh, in the CGT union. So they're, they're threatening, basically, if there's going to be a public event, 
uh, that is like a sort of jewel in the French crown. And in the next few months, in the next 100 days, they're going to cut the power to it. Uh, so they've threatened Cannes Film Festival. Uh, but, you know, any any kind of these, you know, high society events, these big public mm -hmm. spectacles can potentially expect to have their power cuts. It won't, probably won't happen in all of the ones that they threatened, but um, they, they are very good at this. They, they know what they're doing and they are very, very militant. And uh, then the converse side of the Robin Hood uh, actions is the giving away of power for free. So where this has been particularly um, the case is Marseille. Um, where there was actually a protest of uh, smart meters, linky meters, which were just dumped onto the floor of the, of the town hall because the uh, workers have gone around uh, in the dead of night or in a, a borrowed car and tampered with or smashed or cut the wires to uh, smart meters of the buildings of schools, hospitals, and then apartment blocks uh, that are filled with lower income people. Meaning that uh, if you're a lower income and you can't pay, you, you can't be you can't be cut off because uh, they don't know how much you've used and meaning that uh, schools and hospitals are getting, I think 50, a 50% tariff reduction on their, uh, on their electricity bills because they've cut a sort of means of communication between the linky meter and the grid. Um, this is having a big economic impact as well. I spoke to some people in EDF and RTE, which is the body responsible for maintaining power and they've had to import some electricity in order to maintain supply. Uh, on strike days as well, which is there's not just the Robin Hood, Robin Hood actions, there's also the strikes. Um, um, so yeah, that's having a big economic impact. Um, and oh, what was I gonna say? Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's having a big impact, and um, it's oh, that that's right, uh, it's um. Really interesting how the kind of democracy dynamic plays out because it's quite it's quite a dangerous thing for the workers to do this. Yeah, right? like uh, they they could be put in prison because it is illegal. So you speak to the leaders of the CGT, and I think this is an interesting contrast with Britain because you can't really imagine British trade union leaders being even quite this spiky, even some of the more radical ones. You speak to the leaders of the CGT, and they go, "Oh yeah, it happens. This is how it happens. Uh, it's done in the X Y Z way. We don't know who's doing it though, by the way, and we don't know where it's going to happen next." But the this is exactly how one might do it. Um, so it's voted on locally in a local branch, and then they just sort of keep stum. There's a very uh, sort of very disciplined kind of element of um, secret keeping about this, and the leadership do know that it's happening. Like they they absolutely do know that it's happening. I'm sure they know where it's happening. I'm sure they know who's doing it, but they they refuse to tell you. Uh, and then people on the ground keep it secret as well. So that's kind of interesting. And then uh, beyond the people working on the grids, there's strikes in nuclear power plants. There's also strikes in the oil refineries. And the oil refineries have been quite a big deal. They've caused um, fuel shortages uh, at various pumps. Uh, they have caused critical shortages to Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris. I think that's been resolved now. But uh, they were running very, very low on kerosene. And this saw a sort of really uh, kind of chilling, actually, the, the the French American journalist Cole Stangler called it on video um, scene where uh, they were there were requisition orders issued, meaning that the workers were told that they had to return to work because uh, they work in the private sector for Total at a refinery in uh, Fossumer near Marseille. Uh, and so what this saw was hundreds of trade unionists who weren't requisitioned flooding in to sort of provide a line of defence as like armed police effectively were sort of pushing forwards to try and. Um, find who who was not working who should be and try and send them back to work so what i find fascinating here is uh the way that um areas of, of protest and forms of rejection that are very often kept apart uh, and and it can be very difficult to um get people to see political action in these areas as, as interconnected, uh, they all seem to be cohering. The, the pension reforms that um, sort of kicked off and provoked this uh, current wave of, of protests are, are one thing. But um, the fact that these energy workers are are protecting their, their own livelihoods and acting in solidarity with others to, to protect theirs, whilst also being cognizant of the power that they actually have as providers of um, of energy, which is across Europe 
right now uh, at, at a huge premium and we have huge fuel poverty and all, and all other kinds of poverty uh, in Europe. Um, so to sort of see those two things as, as connected uh, strikes me as the very definition of radicalism. Um, and furthermore, to um, there is a recognition um, in these Robin Hood protests of quite how um, quite how spread across all of our um, areas of professional life forms of social control really are. The, the contrast that, that springs to mind is the, the stories here in Britain of um, energy workers uh, being uh, deployed to impose um, coin meters uh, by force, storming into people's houses who haven't paid their bills and saying, right, from now on, you're going to have to pay as you go on uh, on on your energy on, on having the heating on that kind of everyday authoritarianism uh, performed by people who presumably think it's their job just to provide energy they don't see themselves as policing the poor but lo and behold here they are in these protests you're getting the precise opposite you're getting a, a realization that you're not only striking to defend your own livelihood you're also bringing attention to quite how much power you really have over life and death as a worker uh, workers who are in those areas that actually matter do have the power of life and death and and that's being played out before our eyes and i think that that is that is really fascinating and that just has the kind of the germ of um of the protest to come as far as i'm concerned Add to that the fact that they also have the power of the spectacle um, on their on their side. Um, I'll get your um, your take on the the changing state of environmental protest um, in a moment. But again, it, it's it's um, we we all have an opinion on just stop oil throwing paint on um, paintings and so on in in art galleries. And, and but the most common criticism is that this is just a kind of spectacle, and people, you know, might be shocked by it. And okay, it gets the headlines, but you know, what does it actually do to educate? Well, th the examples that you're describing uh, do have that kind of scandalous. Oh, I can't believe it! This uh, this big event is being disrupted in this way. But the, there is that also that kind of material connection to those other um, those other areas. I, I think that that for me is the is the roadmap that is kind of emerging in these French protests. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very interesting comparison to make. And I think that partly the reason that it feels different is because, um, I mean, I mean, it wouldn't necessarily matter that they're in a union, they could be sort of wildcatting this, but it's the fact mm -hmm. that they are the workers and they are, they're, they're acting in their capacity as workers, whereas Just a Poil are, whatever you think of them acting in their capacity as concerned citizens and yeah. I, I think uh it becomes immediately obvious sort of where it, it's sort of it, more immediately political um when it's workers acting in their capacity as workers doing their jobs or not doing their jobs um that that sort of emphasizes that confrontation um I would say because it like it is different turning off the power to someone than it is throwing paint on a Van Gogh because yeah. essentially you're just a sort of however well-meaning however however you know well strategized you are a concerned citizen acting sort of uh independently to do something whereas if you're um turning off the power to a uh a, a public event the film festival that's not done in isolation it's it's very obviously how that connects to the rest of society. I don't know. Yeah, uh, you the way you're speaking just there re remind me re reminds me of how you upset Roger Hallam, the, uh, the the famous environmentalist and the founder of Extinction Rebellion, uh, the uh, anti climate change protest group. Roger Hallam uh, took to Twitter to describe your writings as more liberal left defeatism. The reason the left fails is because it's run by, it's run by people like you, Oliver Haynes, uh, who find it inconceivable that there is an alternative to the neoliberal establishment and fascism. He couldn't be more wrong. Uh, wh wh why, 
why was Roger Hallam so upset with you? And, and what did you take from his criticisms? Well, I, what I take from his immediate criticism is that he only reads the headlines. Um, yeah. <laughs> but but uh, to be a bit more serious <laughs> about it, uh, I think what's happened is that XR has only just discovered that politics matters. Mm -hmm. And, I, and uh, actually, Roger Hallam could do with reading a bit more about French politics, because even... XR over the past few years have uh, had their slogan beyond politics and they've eschewed ideology and um, essentially eschewed political contestation. Their entire framing of protests and uh, environmentalism has just been it's the right thing to do and we need to just get together and do it, which leads any kind of uh, class confrontations, any other, any other trade-offs of interests um, that are at play. And I find and, it uh, sorry just to jump in. It's no accident that they were able to um, they were able to play on something of the same emotional register and probably had a hell of a lot of crossover in support um, with the, the the people's vote yeah. anti Brexit campaigners who also saw themselves as beyond this vulgar. Uh, uh, politicization that we have on the right and the left now. Uh, we are just good people. We are just concerned citizens and we are just following the science. We are just doing the right thing. Um, the, the, the fact that um, Roger Hallam could have demanded a retreat from politics in 2019, precisely the moment when politics was more needed uh, than ever, if, if you know, the, a, a green agenda was your priority, um, kind of says it all. Uh, and yeah, the, the fact that we've seen, you know, the, the most simultaneously ugly and pathetic face of of the the aspiration to be apolitical um, so recently in the uh, in, in the Remain uh, movements, um, well, accounts for the, the mistrust a lot of us still kind of carry over for Extinction Rebellion, I think. No, I mean, I, and I think that's understandable and it speaks to the class character, I think, of a lot of Extinction Rebellion. Um, I mean, I think, I just think, so they're, they're, one of their demands still is the institution of citizens' assemblies. And whatever you think of citizens' assemblies as a proposal, they're obviously not a sub substitute for sort of standard other democratic uh, vehicles and routes like, party to, like uh, political parties and... Uh, other other means of engaging with democracy and i just think it's very funny that i i like there's a very funny irony that he was criticizing my piece about french politics with this because france actually did climate citizens assemblies it was called the citoyen convention de climat the climate citizens convention they true to extinction rebellion's theory the citizens did propose quite a series of radical measures they they they, they listened to the science as the saying goes um and formulated a series of quite radical policy demands. Uh, obviously, what then happened was that Macron ignored or watered them all down because that's not how power works. It's not about winning, uh, uh, sort of being right. It's about who uh, holds power, which Extinction Rebellion, I think, are starting to get. But it has taken them quite a long time, um, quite a long time to get there. The the other um, sort of corner in this, uh, the current geometry of uh, the, the driving down of living standards across Europe um, with the attendant aspiration, we think, on this show of depoliticizing people and making them hopeless. That, um, alongside uh, uh, the way in which people's working conditions are being assaulted, um, uh, the, 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 the climate um issue, the way in which energy runs through all three of those corners, the, the other sort of missing um, bit of the equation here is Russia and Ukraine and uh, the fact that um, although the, the actual causality is kind of is kind of more complicated than this, the, the official explanation for the rising price of, of fuel is uh, the the necessity of imposing sanctions on Russian gas because of the invasion of, of Ukraine. Um, I, I, I'm interested to see uh, the sort of three of those um, corners being brought together in a lot of these um, French protests. And I, I'm curious to know where um, 
where NATO and Atlanticism figures in the the discourse of these political movements. Uh, we are, after all, seeing um, very interesting anti-NATO feeling and, and, and protests uh, across Europe um, as well. Uh, but I also wanted to throw in the example of the German Green Party as as a, a, a very different case study uh, in top-down environmentalism, as it were, where there is no acknowledgement or possibility of arguing for a connection between uh, de demanding people's better living standards, number one, demanding um, uh, uh, action on the climate, number two, and recognizing that Western imperialism has a, a great deal um, at stake in both of those things. The, the German Greens seem to represent um, a kind of a, 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 an extraordinary um, uh, exaggeration of the environmentalism without politics that Extinction Rebellion have been promoting. Uh, I, I mean, they are they are the most Atlanticist <laughs> of anyone and the most um, excitedly anti-Russian, as far as I can tell, uh, of anyone. And, and they, they have the foreign ministry uh, in the, uh, the German coalition at the moment, whilst also pushing for, and I, I wonder what you make of this, um, the, uh, the abandonment of all nuclear energy as of last week uh, in, in Germany. Now, uh, many environmentalists are against nuclear energy. All of them um, uh, uh, envisage their replacement by green, sustainable fuel. That is not what is happening in Germany as a result of the shutting down of nuclear uh, power. So it, 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 it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm throwing in the German Greens as a kind of instance of um, environmentalism without an analysis of um, effects on the living standards of your citizens and environmentalism without consideration of the need for a critique of foreign policy. Um, any sort of take there or, or any... Um, sort of sense in which that there's a, a kind of contrast playing out in these different national contra uh, 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 contexts. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. I think I think it's generous to call it environmentalism with mm -hmm. the German Greens at this point, because um, their response, as well as decommissioning the nuclear plants, which I've not really been able to get my head around why the German Greens are so... Like, like lots of environmental movements are anti-nuclear, I think a bit misguidedly. I, I'm not in the camp of um, some of the people who are really, really bullish on nuclear, the kind of eco-modernist, um, eco-modernist Society of America, the kind of Lee Phillips type people. Uh, mm. they, do, they do some interesting work, but I, I, don't, uh, I don't necessarily think the nuclear is the silver bullet that they seem to think it is. But if you've already got functioning nuclear plants, that's clean energy to decommission them in exchange for opening up coal mines is that's mad like that's that's absolutely insane and that's what the german greens are doing um yeah I, and i kind of i i don't know whether it's about anti-imperialism or not but there's going to have to be a degree of energy autarky i think for um for lots of European countries and lots of European countries do have the domestic capacity to produce energy via either nuclear or renewables. Um, so th there is going to have to be an uncoupling from like the, the international flows of oil and gas, whether that's Russia or whether that's the US. So the fact that that critique is absent really does speak to the kind of paucity of the German Greens. Um, I think from what I gather, I'm not I'm no expert on Germany, but from what I gather, speaking to some German friends and reading a bit about it for uh, my it's, it's freezing in L.A. piece, which actually ended up getting cut. Um, there, there are lots of German Greens who have been horrified by uh, what's happened there. So with the German Green Party acting as the kind of uh, alternative to the SPD, if you're on the left and Delinke doing quite badly. Um, yeah. Historically, potentially, there's an opening there for a new kind of left-wing formation. I I know that I don't want to comment on whether it would be a good thing or not um, for someone like Sarah Wagonect to occupy that space. Because I mean, I've got personal misgivings about her, but but and I know lots of other people do. But she seems poised to sort of create something, and there's rumours about that. Um, the TPS line is it would be a good thing, right? Okay, well, I <laughs> I depart from that slightly, but um, 
but yeah, I mean, it'll be, it'll be interesting to watch. You, you've written that um, that environmental protest um, in Europe has has changed quite profoundly in uh, in, in recent years. C can you explain what what you feel the nature of the change is and where it's going? Yeah. Um, so I I did my master's thesis on this, and I sort of spooled it out into a few articles. Um, I, I know most about Britain and America, but I, I do know a bit about Europe as well. Um, I think so. If you speak to the uh, if you speak to people who study uh, what is either called ecoterrorism or radical uh, environmental animal liberation movements, depending on your preferred moniker, um, the last fifteen years uh, were a historic lull in sort of radical militant action. And what has happened maybe in the last two years uh, is a shift to back towards um, radical action in terms of uh, tactical militancy. So uh, the, the obvious answer to, I mean, actually the only people that have blown up a pipeline recently are state actors. But if you, um, <laughs> if you, uh, well, most likely we don't know. I, I should stress we don't know, but, you know, there are obvious suspicions. Um, um but yeah, Andreas Malm's book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, comes out in 2020, I think, or 2021. And that is not, it not doesn't kick start a wave of militancy, but it, it, it sort of is a symptom of it and does start in its own way some ripples out into greater tactical militancy. So we're seeing more people attack fossil fuel infrastructure directly. And I think actually something that Just Poil, no one talks about with Just Poil, everyone talks about the snooker or the, you know, the, the, when they, Necktie themselves to um, football posts or uh, throw soup on a Van Gogh. They do actually target fossil fuel infrastructure directly, and this is quite a new thing uh, in Britain. They 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 dig tunnels under oil terminals and um, they occupy roads outside oil terminals and protests in that way. Uh, there have also been um, uh, more spiky environmental actions in the US. People like Jessica Reznicek, the Catholic worker who took an oxyacetylene torch to the Dakota Access Pipeline, and that was playing out through Trump's presidency. Uh, there are movements in France um, that sort of pop up every now and then and engage in uh, kind of sabotage. Um, and then stuff like the tire extinguishers, the people who let the tires out on SUVs. So there's the tactical side. It, it's getting, mm -hmm. as politics proper uh, in Westminster, in the Elysee, in the Bundestag, uh, or to Washington, as that fails to adequately deal with the crisis, which I, I think anyone that believes in climate change sort of knows is happening, they are failing to, to deal with this. Uh, that kind of thing will happen more and more. Um, and also, from what I've seen with Just Up Oil in particular, whatever you think of the 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 more sort of spectacular shall we say side of their stunts they are also deepening their class consciousness this is happening slowly uh it's not you know they're, they're not all um becoming sort of bolsheviks or whatever but they are particularly around the energy bills issue which is interesting to thread it back through to what you were saying earlier the energy bills issue has uh provided a sort of useful way for them to pivot into a more class-based understanding of environmentalism because suddenly there was this ready-made basically um, political hot topic about energy and they are then able to say, look, your energy bills are really bad. Uh, we could have more abundant, cleaner, greener energy if we stopped oil and transitioned towards renewables. So that where before they had this potentially kind of almost Macron-like, gilet jaune-like, stop oil, do it immediately, uh, and then that will cause the oil price to spike or that would wreck lives of people who need cars kind of politics. Um, now they're able to kind of fuse it to a more obviously left-wing redistributive uh, kind of stance. And it was interesting over the summer when I lived in London, uh, I don't anymore, but I would, I would go to a lot of these protests and I would speak to people. And this what I wasn't just going to environmental protests. I would turn up to enough is enough stuff and speak to people. And I would turn up to uh, don't pay energy bills protests and speak to people. And there was a growing coalescence. Obviously, this is London, not necessarily totally representative, but there was a growing coalescence of um, 
thought around the idea that the climate and the cost of living were to be tackled together. As well as this, there are emergence of um, sort of outfits uh, like the think tank Climate Vanguards, which is mm -hmm. a, they're, they're interesting boys. Um, they, they run this kind of research unit they've where inspired directly by Andreas Malm uh, about trying to inject a class analysis into these movements. And they've been quite useful in some ways in that they provide like a policy framework for what could happen. So just stop oil is quite a negative demand. It's like, just stop this. It doesn't, doesn't provide that alternative that uh, political movements need. So there are, there are people coalescing around there to kind of create, you know, alternate policies um, as well to create the alternative to the, the stopping to, you know, move into something new. Listeners need to pay attention to the writing of Ollie Haynes, uh, which, uh, as uh, this hour has demonstrated, um, uh, is uh, is real cutting edge stuff in um, showing us the forms that protest is continuing to take in this great era of elite restoration and political demobilization. Uh, if you want to hear more, stick with us. Uh, I hope you can stick around a little bit, Ollie, to tackle some more domestic uh, stuff. Get over to patreon.com forward slash the popular pod. Uh, we're going to be talking about a slightly less optimistic and sadder uh, uh, story of um, the afterlife of left populism in the current state of the Labour Party. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, um, it, it was uh, made explicit about a month ago that he will not be permitted to run as uh, a Labour MP, a, a pretty steep uh, drop for having um, from having been their leader in 2019. And one of his key allies, Diane Abbott, has uh, this weekend just passed, also been suspended from the Labour Party. So we're going to say a little bit uh, about the ongoing crushing of uh, the left here in Britain. Please follow us over there. Uh, and... Uh, Thank you very much, Ollie, for appearing on the Popular Show. Oh, it's a pleasure.